Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week, we have Lauren. Hey. Yeah. Hi there. And Justin. This week, we find out about some more amazing, ignoble prize-winning research, including what makes us see weird faces in unusual objects. Plus, how do we discover if something is really painful? And can art actually hurt someone if it's really bad? And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Justin, have you ever done one of those, like, inkbot tests? Ah, yes. The fascinating things where they get to tell you what the shapes look like and mysterious things look like to you. And supposedly they will unlock the secrets of your subconscious mind and thoughts and dreams and opinions. I cannot actually remember the name of those inkblot tests. Do they have a specific name? Uh, I think they're called the Horsham inkblot, inkblot tests, actually. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it- I think I read somewhere that they actually don't mean that much. (laughs) No, I think it's more part of psychology. It's probably a bit more Freudian than anything, so it's not going to really shed shed some scientific light on it. But it does tell us a lot about interesting pattern recognition and how our brain processes all these crazy patterns that we see. So, Justin, do you think you can um, tell me a bit about the award for neuroscience, um, which involves more pattern recognition? That's right. And so... Kang Lee at the University of Toronto in Canada won the Ig Nobel Neuroscience Prize for trying to understand what happens in brains of people who see the face of Jesus in a piece of toast. So this might sound pretty funny, but it's a kind of long-running joke about all these people who like see miraculous images adorned in toast or really other mundane items. Like, I've heard people selling, um, like, Dorito chip Jesus and, like, a nine bread Jesus on eBay and things like that. <laughs> that that's right. Um, and it could be anywhere from uh, 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 pictures of uh, Jesus or other figures as well, such as famous celebrities or famous objects or brand signs or anything like that, just appearing randomly as these shapes inside an object. And, you know, you have a bit of a laugh and you go, well, man, that person's a bit bit weird if they keep finding this weird pattern in in the middle of nowhere. But Dr. Kang Lee wasn't satisfied with that answer. He wasn't really satisfied with saying that, you know, well, it's just someone being weird and crazy. I really wanted to get to the the heart of it. So what they actually hypothesized and determined was that seeing shapes, whether that be the shape of a very famous person or for Jesus or anyone else, in an object like toast or bread or pancakes or perigees or pretzels actually is a really useful survival skill based around pattern recognition. It, when you actually think of, you first hear about this, you think, well, man, these people are a bit mentally abnormal. And uh, obviously, if you've seen these types of images, so people are often report these, are often ridiculed. And Dr. Kang isn't really satisfied with that. Um, but their findings, and this is from him, from themselves is they finally suggest that it's not com- it is common for people to see non-existent features because human brains are uniquely wired to recognize faces so even when there's only a slight suggestion of facial features bam the brain automatically interprets it as a face and this is actually a really really important survival trait for humanity when you think about it we need to be able to recognize threats that are potentially concealed 
And our brain is adapted to do that by picking up the presence of a face. Much, and even where a face may not exist, kind of like the same way you can trick a computer into thinking a face is someone by putting the shape of kind of the shape of a nose or a shadow of a nose and two whitish spots for eyes and a mouth. You can trick a computer to think there's a face. Much the same way you can do it with a brain. So what these studies have shown is that people from babies to adult process faces a really critical process for the brain to actually do. And uh, what he actually thinks is that people, it's a lot more common. It's not just these weird people who see these crazy faces. Well, they actually reckon that it was a lot more common in the, in the human populace. Um, now, what he did was he showed participants noisy images, right? So images where it was really hard to see if there was a face or not in them. And 30, 30%, 35% of the time, people would suddenly, you know, in these noisy random images of anything, find um, faces inside this noise. He did the same test with letters and found that, again, around 35% found the letters, even when there wasn't actually specifically constructed letters inside them, just things that might look like letters. And so what he really has got at is that the brain is just doing all these tricks to try and process patterns and recognize patterns. And it's really quite common, and it's not an ailment or it's not something to make fun of. It's actually an important part of the brain. Did the participants actually seem to locate the same kind of letters and the same kind of faces? Um, yeah, they actually sort of picked up similar types of patterns. But, it, again, everyone's own personal interpretation was a bit different, so it was still a bit not unique. But what he did find, it wasn't a particular anomaly or a wild imagination part of the brain firing up. It's actually the frontal cortex, the part that is... Um, that generates expectations and signals uh, to interpret the world outside. That was the part of the brain lining up. So it's just part of our normal brain processing that's just going, oh, look, I found a thing that you might want to be aware of. Have a look at it. And that's what happened. So he said his next, next step is to really look at babies and chip spaces to see if they're able to do a similar thing. And his real hypothesis is that since we're such sociable creatures, and picking up a face is a really integral part of social reaction but also survival we just evolved this really fine-tuned process for doing so and now he wants to try and prove it uh, to see if it's seen in other animals as well So sometimes people say that a particular experience or watching a show or looking at a particular movie or book just really is painful to them, like actually pains them to struggle through this terrible artwork or this terrible book or movie that they're watching and just go on and on about how bad it is and how just much it hurts to try and like process and deal with this piece of, of artwork that's in front of you. And it gets really hard to really, you know, take that seriously because such a visceral reaction obviously can't be caused by the creative thing in process. It's just got to be someone's certain aesthetic response to it. But uh, some researchers were not really happy with that answer and tried to test it out. So what happened here, Lauren? So for the ignoble prize of art... Um, researchers Marina Di Tommaso and her colleagues at the University of Bari actually looked at the 
looked at the relative pain that people suffer while looking at ugly paintings as compared to pretty paintings. Right, so wait, how did they do this? Like, because that's a thing, really hard thing to measure in terms of relative pain. So what they actually did was um, they got people to, they got the participants to like look at art pieces and then like rate them as to whether they found them really pretty or really ugly. Yep. So that's that's first how they distinguished whether the people, like how aesthetically pleasing those paintings were. The next step was to shoot them in a the hand with a powerful laser beam. Well, hang on a second, like surely this is not scientifically viable just to shoot someone with a laser. It's okay, <laughs> sounds, the study was like dangerous. This sounds like something they've like thought up on a dare. Like, it's okay, <laughs> just trust me on this. I'm going to shoot you with a laser and it's going to help us do science. Why? Science reasons. <laughs> well, this, this did end up having some good scientific results. So what they actually found was that the perception of pain that they were getting from, you know, being shot with the laser beam actually changed if they were looking at an aesthetically pleasing painting or, you know, something they considered very, very ugly. That's, that's really interesting. So, like, the, the, <laughs> the perception of pain could get better or worse, basically, depending on the artwork. So if the artwork was nice, then the pain was less. Then rather than if the artwork was terrible, the pain was worse. So it kind of like the pain was, the artwork was soothing them. Kind of, yes. Or you can take it in the other way and say, yeah, the bad artwork was causing them pain plus the pain of, like, the laser was just too much. <laughs> so the pain, like, they were being shot with a laser and they were like, no, no, staring at this picture, that's what's actually making my life suffering right now. <laughs> I would be really interested to see if they had to rate which was worse, looking the pain of looking at the ugly painting or the pain of being shot with a laser. Yeah, and that does raise a really valid question about the study. Did they actually be, were they able to tell which pain was caused by the painting, which pain was caused by the laser, or only that they were correlated? Um, unfortunately, they were only able to tell if they were correlated. So they said that possibly looking into that would be a good future step. Well, that raises a really interesting question about how we actually measure pain, because it's it's not it's not something which is really straightforward. Yeah, so. Basically, there's many different ways of measuring pain. So it's obviously a really important part for medicine and particular doctors and nurses and hospitals trying to manage people's illnesses and state of well-being. So pain is pretty much often regarded as the fifth vital sign. Uh, and there's a couple of different measures that we can use. Uh, you know, there's the faces pain scale, uh, a pain rating system, a colored analogy scale that you can kind of ask them what they're feeling and get them to report it, or either using a visual analog signal or a verbal numeric rating is often another one that you might hear, or a verbal descriptor. So that's, those are the kind of things we ask where we say, how much does this hurt? Does this hurt more or less, or we read their face or things like that. And other times we, are, we undertake an observational thing where we, we might observe, um, their, for example, the flack, the face, arm, legs, cry, consolability scale, or... <laughs> Um, another one which is developed um, called the CHIOPS, which is Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario Pain Scale. So there's a number of like different systems we have in place to try and measure pain. And it's it's really quite interesting because it, it is it can be a really subjective thing. Um, but, you know, one of the more common ones that we make reference to is the numeric uh, rating scale. Right? So zero is no pain, one to three is mild pain, a nagging kind of interfering um, pain. Four to six is a moderate pain. 
it interferes significantly with a function and operation of general life. And seven to ten is severe pain. It's disabling or unable to perform standard motor function tasks. So there, there is many different uh, pain indexes that we try and come up with, uh, but managing that is a really important challenge. So knowing a bit more about how pain can be lessened or worsened through purely aesthetics, so you know, no actual physical harm being done, really goes a long way to helping doctors and researchers understand how we can help make people feel better in life and when being treated. theoretical physicist the other day yeah that sounds like a story and a half (laughs) he doesn't believe in string theory well string theory is pretty contentious it it is it is and he explained that to me very thoroughly so what what did you learn about string theory um basically there was a lot of suspect mathematics there it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a mathematician who wrote it (laughs) well it's sort of like a mathematical uh fudge it's like we we Mm. want we want this to happen so what do we have to do to make it happen Positive infinity plus negative infinity to equal negative one on twelve. Yes. Well, I mean, there's a lot of mathematics that doesn't really make sense if you think about it <laughs> in a in a in a logical way. But then you do it, and it actually works really well. Like, um, for example, um, square roots of negative numbers. Okay, this seems crazy, right? What is the what? two negative numbers can you multiply together to make a positive number nothing you can't you can't make you can't make multiply two negative numbers together to make another negative number it just doesn't work but you can if you say well let's just pretend let's let's just say it does right out there somewhere is this combination of positive uh, two negative numbers that we can multiply to make a negative number and let's call it i right as soon as you do that you can solve like so many equations and solve things that actually really impact your life from everything from functioning phones and electricity to health planets and everything move but it's all stemmed on this one fact of two negative numbers multiplied together give us another negative number even though that goes against everything we know about mathematics so sometimes things that seem completely absurd if you just assume them that they're true and then see where it goes you can actually go to some amazing places which is kind of what they do with string theory, and they say, okay, well, let's make some well, mathematics up together to get that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the nice thing I find about string theory. It's sort of, after listening to somebody talk about it for, you know, half an hour or something, you think about it, and you kind of, you can kind of see it in your head. It, it's something that's, um, like, you know, I don't really trust things that I can't understand, and it's kind of like string theory's got a bit of a, um, parts of it really make sense to you. Mm. Yeah, and, um, that's what's really interesting about string theories because it's actually trying to understand and explain the very fabrics of the universe, which is a uh, really kind of hard to explain. So yeah, well, we actually and got test. on the and test and test. Well, how do you test something about the very nature of the universe? It's kind of yeah. very very difficult. You make a really 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 big microscope. Yes. You do. Yes. Isn't that called a telescope? Uh, would you say the super mega big telescope that we talked about in a previous episode? <laughs> well, I suppose if you're trying to look at the universe before the Big Bang, you'd need a you'd need one of those really really tiny microscopes. Yeah, well, I guess that's important. Um, but it's actually it's guys, this is a serious and valid question about how we discover things like 
really, really small stuff, the start of the universe and telescopes and stuff. And we do have really, really big telescopes to do that. And we also have mm-hmm. really, really small ones. Um, <laughs> but the best one that we have, I've got to say, is a massive area of, sp- of basically space in Antarctica where oh. underground, where we're just monitoring for the tiniest little thing to pass through it. It's not a telescope per se. It's just basically it's this underground. Big yeah, it's this big grid detectory thing that we're trying to pick up the passage of neutrinos from leftover radiation from the Big Bang and supernovas. Oh, wow. And they're so rare. They're so small. I mean, this is like smaller than <laughs> atoms, guys. This is really, really small. We have to basically use this whole massive area underground and wait for something to pass, stray thing to pass through it from space. Because... They're so small, they just pass right through matter. So it doesn't matter that it's underground because it's going to go through all of the Earth. <laughs> they and pass just, through matter, it doesn't matter? It doesn't matter what's in its way. It's not going to stop. <laughs> so basically, we, we just try and like catch it for a brief glimpse of, of it as it passes through. <laughs> so that's, that's really how we use these neutron telescopes and they're, they're, to try and catch something so small using such a huge area just to hopefully catch one. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we learned how evolution helps us recognise faces in unusual objects, which causes us to see things in things like toast. We also found out if we can measure pain felt by seeing bad art on the pain index and how that would work. We also discussed string theory and complex mathematics. Our ending theme was composed by Audionatics. Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.